1: Kellen, I got to say that weeks like this are my absolute favorite, because despite the fact that climate change is raging on, politics is a steaming pile of mess, inflation is through the roof, on weeks like this, I got to hand over all of the research for the podcast to you, and now for the next 40 minutes or so, I just get to sit back and relax and let you do your thing. And knowing that if this episode tanks, if it just sucks and nobody likes it, and we get a thousand bad reviews, it's on you and not me. Wow, man, that was dramatic. Well, I'm sure glad I can bring you joy. (laughs) And it's not like I can really celebrate too much. The reason you took it over was because I was behind on editing. And I honestly would rather do research than editing all day long.
0: Well, you know what? We're a team, which is interesting because I never anticipated this would be my life. I remember when you came to me and said, like, hey, I am really interested in
1: all this collapse stuff. I want to teach you about it, but I want to do it on a podcast. Well, if you don't mind, before you get into that, I actually want to correct and clarify something there. I don't know if you remember, I had actually originally intended to do this podcast solo. I was just going to, I'd actually recorded the first episode by myself and it was terrible. And I remember we were on a zoom call for work and you saw my microphone in the background and you were like, is that a microphone? What's it for? And I was like, kind of sheepish about it but I was like oh like I'm starting this podcast you know how I've talked I've mentioned to you collapse before and like all these problems I think that are happening I'm, I'm just doing like a podcast and I just remember you were like that's fascinating like I kind of want to learn all this stuff and then it just clicked and we were like well I know that the podcast will be better if there's two of us and anyway the format turned out awesome and we've got tons of positive feedback in the way that we've done it but I just wanted to throw in that side story since you brought it up.
0: That's amazing. I honestly have no memory of it happening that way at all. Apparently I'm a much nicer friend than I thought.
1: And I'm sure I've got that first episode logged away somewhere where I recorded it solo. And seriously, it was, it was terrible. I'm so glad that it worked out the way that it did because it probably would have lasted like four episodes. I would have got terrible feedback because it's just me talking into a mic, you know, reading from a script or whatever. Uh, But this has just worked out so much better I don't think there's any way that the podcast could have continued as long as it has without me having you to motivate me and vice versa.
0: Well, although I don't remember the details you just described, what I do remember is thinking that you had kind of your curriculum outlined for eight episodes, and I thought we would record eight episodes and put it out there and be done. I never imagined I would learn so much and that this would become so all-encompassing. And even now, you know, we've got a long list of all the things people have requested that we do episodes on. It seems like we're just kind of scratching the surface of all that there is to know and to learn and the conversations that need to be had in order to become fully aware of our situation and more prepared to do something about it.
1: Yeah. I remember at the beginning, you know, I made a list of what I thought different episodes could be on. I wrote them down on my whiteboard and I came up with like I think there was like sixty or seventy, and I remember thinking, I'm sure some of these are going to end up being together in one. I won't do an entire episode on each, so you know, I think we've probably got something like a year's worth of podcast in us, and then we can go from there. And I remember bringing that up to you and saying, like, like yeah, after the first year, like we're probably going to have to figure out what we do and, and how we're going to go from there to to make sure we have enough content. And you were like, I don't know if I want to commit or can commit to like a whole year. I don't know where I'm going to be a year from now. But now we're at this point. And it just seems like, like you just said, there is no shortage of material. We could easily come up with, I think we actually have in our Excel sheet now, 50 or 60 more topics to talk about. And we have all these like sub series we've talked about doing in the future. So it's just cool that it feels so natural as it does. And that even now being a year into it, it feels like there's no end in sight. Well, when it comes to important topics
0: that we haven't even begun to discuss yet, One thing we've never really covered before is what collapse has looked like in the past. If we really want to understand how a society falls apart or how it goes from something complex to more simple, we've got thousands of years of human history to see when that has happened and what led to that. And this is just another one of those things where we could do an entire podcast on this topic, but I'm hoping that today we can at least gain a fundamental understanding of historical precedent for collapse. There are some models that exist out there as to why that happens. There are real examples of when it has happened and what we can learn from that. But again, it's just one of those things where we could talk so much more about it and there's so many experts we could bring in. And so I'm excited to begin having conversations about this.
1: And I think in the future, we do plan on elaborating, going into much more detail about this. From what I understand, Kellen, your research didn't involve, you know, Jared Diamond or Joseph Tainter, all of whom we plan on doing, hoping to do interviews with in the future. But also, at the very least, we're going to do reviews of their books. We'll reread their books on collapse and talk about those specifically in detail. So in this episode today, I don't think you intend to speak about their perspectives but look at it more from, like you said, a higher level.
0: Yeah, and I will be really interested to see if Jared Diamond, Joseph Tainter, when we have the opportunity to have conversations with them or as we review books they've written on this topic, I'll be fascinated to find out whether it aligns with some of the conclusions I've come to as I've done my own research on the topic. And I
1: think it's safe to say, Kellen and I are not historians. Um, Honestly, history in general for me has been something that growing up I, I wasn't interested in. I've become a lot more interested in it as I've grown older, but I still don't spend a lot of time researching it. I won't speak for you, Kellen, but I think I think we would both agree that there are people who are listening to this who are going to know a lot more about history than we do. So we are not by any means trying to come across as the experts on these topics. But with that, sort of the whole purpose of our podcast has been to take ideas and explain it from a viewpoint of someone who's not an expert because... I think we're able to view it from a higher level and be a little more simple about it. Whereas if we had a historian on here, there would be this temptation to go into a ton of detail as well. So obviously there's value in both. And like we said, we hope to get some historians on here to interview, but for now, we feel like there's value in a very simplistic approach to viewing collapse historically.
0: Great. Well, part of the reason there's some nuance in all of this is because in today's world, we have this interconnected global economy. And we've got threats like climate change that are affecting the entire world. And we've got globalization in general through technology. So stuff doesn't happen in isolation. Human civilizations in the past were able to go through periods of growth and decline in different parts of the world simultaneously. And while that still happens to some degree, because we're so interconnected globally now, everything we've talked about on the podcast up to this point
1: has implied kind of a global collapse. Just as sort of an analogy to, I think, what you're speaking about. Last week, my daughter, we are at my mom's house, and my mom has a bunch of dominoes. And my daughter wanted to build as long of a domino chain as she could and then knock them all down at the end. And every time she tried, and I was helping her and my mom was helping her, along the way of putting those dominoes up, we'd mess up, and we'd accidentally knock one down, and when it would destroy all the progress we've made and we probably tried like 10 different times and finally someone got the wise idea to every you know 10 dominoes or so take a domino or two out leave a space between them so that if one part fell you would just need to fix that one section and then at the end you could go back and put uh, put them all back in and, and have one chain and in the past societies were such that they were all their own little section of dominoes one could fall and it wouldn't have a, an effect on the others. But today, in our sort of globalized, hyper-complex environment, there's simply no way for an issue in one area to not cause a consequence in another.
0: That's a perfect analogy, and I think that is a really good visualization of what I was trying to say. And as we have this conversation, I think it's important to remind everyone that we've never claimed extinction is what we anticipate. Collapse and extinction are very different. And just like how now, if you look at collapsed societies from the past, most of those civilizations still exist. But in terms of their population, or their complexity, or their global influence, or whatever, they're often just a shadow now of what they once were. And later in this episode, we'll look at the fall of certain empires. I want to acknowledge that I know a society isn't an empire, they're not the same thing. But the decline of an empire is a really good example to look at, because by the time you are considered an empire, you're probably a fairly complex society. So all civilizations, at some point and to some degree, collapse. Some never recover. So you think about, like, Mayan civilizations, you know, Western and Eastern Roman empires, the Easter Island civilization, and while they never really recover, you get others that just kind of gradually fade, like the British Empire. You get some that transform and then come back, like China, or India, or even Egypt at different times. But in looking at historical examples of collapse, for the purpose of this broader conversation, really the reason we do it is to ask ourselves, why do societies collapse? And how does that happen? And as kind of a parallel, you know, a person could ask, well, why does a human being die? And in that case, you recognize it can happen in a lot of different ways. Like Corey, I'm curious, have you ever tried to think about what you think the most likely scenario
1: of your own death is? I know I've <laughs> I've pictured myself dying in different ways, for sure, and I've thought about the future and but I can't say that I've pinned down what that most likely cause of death will be, though I am definitely curious. Well I think most people just assume that they will
0: Die of old age, or that when they get to an advanced age, there will be some sort of a health issue that causes them to die. But I think most people expect to live a long and full life. But if you think about it, Corey, you could die simply as a victim of like a tragic event. Maybe you get in a car crash, or you suddenly get a terminal illness and die. That's not your fault necessarily, it's not anybody else's fault. There are certain things that can just happen because they happen or like we talked about before your health could simply decline as you get older and your body can't keep up with the wear and tear potentially someone else could purposefully take your life or it's possible that you could take your own life and hopefully never as a conscious choice but it could be that you just make some dumb choices that result in your premature death Right, So if somebody comes to you and they ask the question, why do people die? Well, it can be for all these different reasons. And it's important to keep in mind that there are some blurred lines between those different reasons that I just gave. Like, for example, if you have made some dumb choices or you haven't taken good care of yourself and your health, then when a disease comes along and hits you, it might affect you much more strongly than it would otherwise. And it could be that you're at at least an advanced enough age that your body... Can't keep up with it. And maybe at the same time, whoever your primary caretaker is, you know, maybe they've got some ulterior motive and they neglect to give you as good of care as you need because it's better for them personally if you pass on. So anyways, it's the same with societies. If someone says, why does a society collapse? It could be that something bad just happened to it, right?
1: A natural disaster
0: or a disease could just come in and wreak havoc.
1: Pompeii, volcano,
0: Yeah, exactly. That wasn't because they made dumb choices or because... I mean, they did build at the base of a volcano, but... Good point. Yeah, you get the point. It could be that it just happens to them. It could be that the health of a society declines as it just can't perpetually replace its infrastructure. And that falls more in line with catabolic collapse. Or it could be that another society can overcome it through force or through other tactics. Or as a society makes dumb choices, they're kind of digging their own grave. And again, usually it's a blend of all of those.
1: Yeah. Like I think about, you know, you talk about somebody getting a sickness or an illness and dying, like you said, a person who's not taking care of their own health, or maybe a person who's immunocompromised is much more likely to fall to that illness, or maybe even an illness that normally wouldn't be fatal. Right. And the same can be true of a society, a society like ours, who's getting into an advanced stage of catabolic collapse might fall to an economic disaster or a natural disaster or something like that that normally wouldn't be fatal. But because the system is already in such a state of decay, it's enough to sort of put it over the edge. So it's, I get what you're saying, that there's a lot of variability and nuance and complexity to why systems collapse. Yeah, exactly. And very early on, I think it was like
0: maybe episode two, or three of the podcast, you taught me about complex societies. And in order for a complex society to form and exist and grow, there has to be a surplus of income and resources. In order for it to be an advanced society, you have to be able to afford things like protection, law and order, cultural production, administration, etc. So what that means is that you have to have both producers creating the goods and services right? Like farmers, craftsmen, traders, servants. And you also have to have the organizers. You might think of those as like politicians, merchants, bureaucrats, priests, warriors, economists, lawyers. And the organizers offer the protection or a path to increased wealth or religious benefits or administrative services. And in return, they're supported by the surplus of income produced by the producers. And that might come from voluntary contributions like in the case of maybe a religious leader, or it might be extracted from the producers through taxes or through control or manipulation of the markets. And it just works out that usually those organizers get to enjoy a heightened level of not only wealth, but also power, class, and status. So I like this idea of viewing things through the lens of producers and organizers, partly because it's simple, but it also makes some models of collapse easier to understand. And by the way, when it comes to those organizers, I think sometimes we lump them into one category as like military leaders or politicians or merchants, religious leaders, but usually the kind of wealth and power and status end up having a lot of crossover. So like European political and military roles, like dukes, barons, knights, those became permanent titles of honor and led to them then controlling land. Or you get like the commercial obliarchs of Renaissance Italy or the Netherlands. And even though they're merchants, they usually then acquired military power. Or you think of like the Roman church or Buddhist monks, these powerful religious groups that ended up with a lot of land and wealth. So I think it makes sense to just kind of lump the organizers all together and recognize
1: that they get to enjoy a lot more wealth, power, status than the producers. Which in today's society would be elites basically and working class, right? Are kind of the two distinctions there. Yeah, that's spot on. And the resources or wealth
0: from like the elites has to be extracted in one way or another from the working class. Again, whether that's voluntary or involuntary, but that leads to something interesting. And here's a quote from an article by an individual named Harold Perkin in 2002. It says, in the end, All elites face the temptation to turn extraction into exploitation. Once a system of extraction is in place, the elite are tempted to take more and more and to think that unlimited power, wealth, and comfort are theirs by right. Concentrations of wealth begin to appear far beyond the real needs of the elite and more than the society can reasonably afford. So, and then Harold Perkin goes on to give all these examples throughout all history of these royal palaces and aristocratic houses and these great estates and the luxuries of servants, the lavish public buildings, all these signs of extreme wealth that have been extracted from the working class. And these excessive outward signs of wealth do a couple of really interesting things. One of them is that it invites external threats. So, when you've got all these big beautiful cities and royal palaces that entice's conquerors like how the persian and egyptian temples and palaces really called to alexander's macedonians and then later to the romans and the other thing that that big accumulation of wealth from The elites does is it creates a lot of discontentment from the general population, which then leads to revolts, revolutions, reformations, and in some cases, extermination of the elites, which sometimes happens with the help of foreign power. So anyways, that's a long way of saying that when you get this big exploitation of the producers or the working class, it kind of by nature increases both internal threats and external threats. If the elites take more than their reasonable share, and when producers or working class face an inability to buy their own products, the natural consequence of that is economic depression and decline. And even before you hit economic depression and decline, you see the morale of the general population decline. And that results in more crime and alcoholism and resentment towards the government. One statement I came across about the Western Roman Empire said this, In the late Western Roman Empire, the increased weight of slavery in the countryside and heavy taxation in the towns made the populace indifferent to the survival of the state. And defense was left to German mercenaries who eventually overran the government and usurped the emperor's power. So Corey, I'm curious, does that resonate with you when you hear that explanation
1: for how many societies
0: collapse, this kind of widening wealth gap and the threats that brings?
1: Absolutely. That last passage that you just read just goes right along with what we've talked about a couple times now in past episodes. Even the one just recently that we did about the wealth gap, specifically where you said it got to a point where people were indifferent about the success of their state and the survival of it. You know, We've mentioned in the past that, that it can get to a point where if you're living in such terrible conditions and you're so resentful of your country's elite and organizers... If a foreign power were to come in and offer you something more stable or offer you a better lifestyle and less oppression, like most people are going to take that, even if it means the dissolution of their their current state or their current government. We've given examples of people allowing barbarians to attack you know in the Roman Empire or even joining them the people knew they were important to the barbarians you know in order to to be able to take over the state and so they were treated well where in their own state they were just completely cast aside and so yeah the, what you're saying it's just it just completely rings true and while we've used the Roman Empire as an example I'm sure that it's true of many others as well.
0: Yeah, you can imagine how quickly loyalty to the state or loyalty to your elite fades when you find yourself in a desperate situation, when you feel really oppressed or you can't make ends meet and all of a sudden your conquerors look more like your saviors, right? Another factor or you could say a model of how collapse comes about from empires is just imperial overstretch. So when the military cost of growing, expanding and defending what you've conquered is higher than your capacity to keep up with that economically, you have to shrink back down. You have to decline to some degree. In other words, there just isn't that surplus that we talked about before, or at least enough of a surplus to support continual expansion. And that's one that I feel like we've talked about over and over again with catabolic collapse, limits to
1: growth. You can't just keep growing and support that extra mass. Yeah, and I know a couple good examples of, of this happening. Um, the Western Roman Empire, again, was a huge one for that, as well as the British Empire in the 20th century and maybe the uh, American Empire in the 21st <laughs> TBD. But yeah, there's examples in the Roman Empire of, you know, they'd, they'd take over a new territory, a new kingdom. They'd sort of disrupt the local economy and they'd be left with a whole lot of capital, from that takeover, but they're left without the resources, the manpower, essentially, to be able to control it, to be able to maintain it. You know, growing up, one of my favorite games was Risk. No one will play it with me. My brothers don't like to play it with me anymore, but I was just obsessed with it. I play it all the time. And for those who don't know, Risk is a board game. You start with a certain number of territories, a certain number of military units, and then you try and take over the whole, the whole globe, basically. And one of the worst strategies in that game, and the one that was very easy to play against, was someone who would just spread themselves all over the map. They'd stretch themselves thin by attacking nearby territories and leaving very little people left to defend it. And so even though for a moment they might own half the map or three quarters of the map, it was very easy to at that point retaliate and take it all back. And they might have spent a good while trying to build that up, but it was very quickly taken over. And if you've played risk, you know what I'm talking about. And I think it's just a perfect example of what you're talking about here of just taking on too much with not enough resources to back it up and keep the maintenance of that capital going.
0: Yeah. And that same kind of thing happens every day in the business world. You know, i talked a little bit about my graduate degree in business and some of the things I've learned there. And one of the things that shocked me was when I learned that, you know, there's, there's all these statistics out there about how the vast majority of new businesses fail within the first few years. And that wasn't a surprise. But what was a surprise was to learn that usually the reason for that was simply that they grew too quickly. You think of maybe an entrepreneur who starts a new business, is all excited about it, does all the legwork to get things rolling and starts to see sales coming through and thinks, oh, this is awesome. I I can increase the number of sales if I hire a few more people. Oh, great. I hire a few more people start to see more sales, but even just to keep up with that, now I've got to buy computers for all my employees and I've got to take out a loan to get this other asset, this machine that I can use to produce more, blah, blah, blah. And almost always it's the case that the growth isn't steady and controlled. It's too quick. And then as soon as a risk comes along or a setback, they're overleveraged and they can't handle it. So you mentioned the Western Roman Empire. And that's perfect because that's the first example I want to talk about. And maybe we spent even too long at the beginning of this episode describing how we're not here to go into a lot of detail. We're not historians, but there's just a couple of noteworthy things about some of these historical examples. So I feel like even if you don't know anything about history, you've probably heard about the fall of Rome. And some experts out there blame it on, you know, economic factors, the strength of the economy. Others will say it had to do with the size and effectiveness of the army or the size and the health of the Roman population. Some attribute it to internal power struggles, or the religious changes that were happening during that time, or the efficiency of the civil administration. But as I went through and kind of studied the history, there were a couple of little moments that I wanted to highlight. From about the year 150, there was some sort of a climate shift in the Mediterranean. And I don't know a lot of details about it. I didn't dig deep there. But apparently it had a negative impact on that area. And the reason I thought that was noteworthy is just drawing parallels and, you know, the climate issues that we're seeing today. From the year 165 to 180, there was really heavy mortality from the Antonine Plague. And maybe it's because we're right in the middle of a pandemic, but that stood out to me. There were barbarian invasions, repeated civil wars, you know, certain leaders made efforts that kind of would bring the empire together, but then these external and internal forces would divide it. But at one point, there was kind of this dramatic increase in just the cruelty and the extortion and the corruption. And the richest families, the senatorial families, became more and more wealthy. And part of it was because they were immune to taxes. But as historians have looked back, there's these indicators of a widening wealth gap. From the year 274 to the late 4th century, there was a two and a half times increase in the purchasing power of gold, which indicates that there was growing economic inequality between the peasants and the elite that actually had gold. As the empire, like you mentioned before, was trying to maintain everything that it had conquered and keep all of its land and assets, and while at the same time fighting wars, in one case during the reign of Theodosius, an extra levy resulted in rioting in which the emperor's statues were destroyed and then around the 380s wealthy landowners were heavily oppressing the poor who were growing the food while at the same time making a ton of money from the food that they were growing and you get just kind of this long drawn out history of usurpers and rebellions battles wars and then finally in year 410, the city of Rome itself was sacked for three days by the Goths. And from there on, over the next handful of decades, there were plenty of things that happened, but Rome just never was what it once was. So I pulled those moments out because again, you see this increase in greed, corruption, extortion, a widening wealth gap, and there's all the internal pressures, external pressures. There's this imperial overreach and trying to keep up with maintaining the empire itself those factors combined led to sort of an implosion of the Western Roman Empire.
1: It's so interesting because, you know, the beginning of this episode, you kind of explained the parallels between like how a person might die and how a society might collapse. And it's like, okay, Pompeii, volcano goes boom and society's gone, right? And then you've got something like the Roman Empire that takes centuries to collapse. There never really was one moment in which you would say, the Roman Empire collapsed this day, or this year, or even this decade. And there wasn't one factor. There was, as you just described, dozens of factors happening simultaneously, impacting each other, so having these cause and effects. But eventually, all of those things combined took what was, up to that time, the greatest civilization, the greatest society that had existed, and brought it to its knees, basically. Going back to your analogy of businesses. I think of people who try and get rich quick and get rich quick schemes and how it's so much easier just to imagine making a bunch of money all at once from one big push, one massive effort. you know. And, and then I think of people who learn about collapse and there's all these people out there who, who talk about what we talked about in the very first episode of the, of the podcast, like EMPs and asteroids and solar flares and all of these crazy things. And it's just not how it works. It's not one big thing that happens that takes, that puts a complex, successful society on its knees. It's not one get rich quick scheme that's going to make you wealthy. It is that sort of complex, consistent combination of things that's required to to make that happen. Yeah. And there's
0: always the exceptions, right? With individuals, there's always people who do suddenly get really rich. And with societies, there are some who become complex really quick and some who collapse really quick. But in most cases, it's gradual growth and a gradual decline. I thought it was interesting. I don't know if you remember this, Corey, but a long time ago, we interviewed John Michael Greer and he made the comment, you know, people say Rome wasn't built in a day, but they don't realize that it also didn't collapse in a day. These things take time. Okay, so we've talked about the Western Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire, sometimes called the Byzantine Empire, remained one of the dominant forces in the East for centuries. And again, there's so much history there, but just a couple of things I thought were noteworthy. It was an empire that was absolutely flourishing. But in the year 549, under Justinian I, a terrible plague hit and wiped out a bunch of the population. Justinian, as a result, had to agree to a treaty with the Persians, and they eventually subdued the Persians, but they were then weakened by having like 25 years of war. Later, they began losing territory to the Arabs. It was really significant when they lost Egypt because the Egyptian province was one of their major sources for resources and capital and labor. And then later, the nobles wanted to take land from the peasants and farmers, and that ended up causing some conflict between the government and the nobles. The nobles gained a lot of power and pretty much operated independently of the government. So they even had their own military forces and collected their own taxes. And we began to see this increase in greed and corruption. Nobles imposed really high taxes on the farmers that undercut the theme system, which if you're not aware land was granted to farmers who in return would then provide the empire with soldiers. But that got kind of messed up because of what the nobles were doing. And all those increased taxes weakened the strength of the economy. It's this downward spiral. And it gets to the point where the empire can't afford the cost of its own military. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Anyways, there's recurring civil wars, revolts, There's wars and they win some battles, they lose some, but eventually Constantinople is destroyed. And then later there's these power struggles with the Greeks and the Serbs. And eventually amidst all of these wars and all of the ongoing civil disputes, the Ottoman Empire rises up and kind of overtakes them as the global superpower. The Ottoman Empire empire, you know, sometimes called the Turkish empire. That one lasted for like 600 years. I'm not going to go into detail there, but it's in my opinion, a similar story. I mean, really when it comes down to it, there's a few factors at play. There's the internal struggles, the external struggles, the imperial overreach, the wealth disparity, and the inability to keep up economically.
1: Boy, can I just say that I am relieved that we're not facing any of those issues today? Yeah, this is all just old history. No parallels.
0: There's a couple more that I could mention. I mean, there's so many more that we could dive into. Like there's the Gupta Empire in Northern India. We've mentioned what took place with the British Empire. There really is a lot of fascinating history about the rise and fall of these empires. But I'll just say a couple of things about the Spanish Empire. And the Spanish Empire was huge. You know, the Roman Empire, that's kind of more ancient history in my mind. The Spanish Empire... We're talking like 1492 to even like 1970s. And I'm particularly interested in it because I once took a college course called History and Civilizations of Spain. And it was such a significant empire that at one point it was called the Empire on which the sun never sets. Simply because they had territories throughout the globe. So they had expanded extensively. You know, they had issues with the way they were trying to manage their colonies and extract resources from them. At one point during the reign of Charles V, Spain was in conflict with the French and the Ottomans, the Germans, and they needed more funds because it's expensive trying to fight all those battles. So they were taking out loans from other countries, and they started trying to increase a bunch of taxes. There are these kind of notorious taxes, the Alcabala tax, the Crusada terces servicio all these taxes that came about and people either tried to just subtly evade those taxes or in some cases they enacted violence on the tax collectors there were tax collectors that got killed or they were trying to board a ship and leave for the americas and of course (laughs) the elites the nobles and the government employees were tax exempt so while The people, the working class, were getting taxed more and more heavily. You get like the Dutch revolt, the rise in Protestantism, which was in direct conflict with Catholicism, under which the government was run. Later on, there's just lots of revolts. Some of those are successful. The government ends up kind of in a whole mess of issues and just starts imploding. And it's at that point that France invades. Anyways, there's revolutions in the Americas that were successful. They end up losing basically all of their possessions in the Americas, and they lose Cuba and Puerto Rico and Guam and even the Philippines. And Spain is still around today, right? A great country. But it was once this dominant global superpower. And because of all the same reasons that we've highlighted over and over again, they ended up collapsing as an empire. So as I looked at the history behind the rise and fall of all these empires, I could see these patterns. And to me, it was... Kind of bone chilling. It it was scary to read through what has happened in the past because of the things that I've seen just in my lifetime here in America. And again, I know we talk often about collapse as like a global thing because we are so interconnected. But when I think of the American empire, I think of the external threats. I think about witnessing the terrorist attacks. I think about just in recent years with. Economic recessions and with all this political turmoil and these increasing natural disasters, these diseases that we're throwing tons and tons of money at to try and make repairs. I think of all of the civil disputes, the kind of social unrest, the marches in the streets, the statues being torn down. And, you know, we talked about how when people become really resentful of their own government, they're less loyal and less willing to defend it. And just kind of anecdotally, I feel like where there used to be such a strong sense of patriotism in the U.S., it's almost all political divisiveness and being fed up with the system. You know, people are recognizing flaws in how we operate and all the corruption that's there and what that does to a capitalist society. And I don't know what it looks like from your perspective, Corey, but from mine, it feels like we are at a very scary place, at least when I compare it to how this has turned out for past empires.
1: Yeah. Like you said early on in the episode, there's a difference between an empire and a society. There's parallels there, but just looking outside of all the systemic issues that we have As a global civilization, the American empire in which you and I reside has its own severe threats. Even if globally everything was going great, even if collapse wasn't an issue worldwide, the collapse of the American empire is likely. You know, we have mentioned in the past how the average lifespan of an empire is something like 250 years, you know, and here the U.S. is at about that. And it's facing all of the issues that you just mentioned. We're already seeing the rise of other world superpowers as the U.S.'s sort of grasp on that title, I guess you could say, is falling from an economic perspective, especially. But I think perhaps the most telling, and this is backed up by the stats that we've read in past episodes, is that the morale and the loyalty and the trust of the citizens of the United States is deteriorating and it's happening rapidly and the events of these last couple of years with the pandemic and how it's been handled with social justice issues the, with this political divide it's just exploding and it will be really interesting to see i mean not even just in the coming decades but in just the coming years how that trend continues and and how that results for us
0: i think one of the key takeaways for me, as I went through these historical examples, was seeing just how much wealth disparity is a factor in collapse. To me, it completely made sense that when you get to a certain size and complexity, it's really hard to maintain that. It takes a lot of resources, capital to keep that up. But in my mind, a widening wealth gap was something sad, but not something as dangerous as I think I now see it as. And seeing that over and over again, when the elites take a disproportionate share, and that when that increases to a certain level, the way that that invites external threats, and it increases internal threats, it makes the economy itself so much less sustainable, and then comparing that to our conversations we've had in the past on what wealth disparity looks like in the U.S., it's absolutely mind-boggling. You know, the 300 and whatever percent increase in CEO pay compared to hardly any increase at the bottom of the ladder. And I remember at one point, we talked about a scale that's used to measure wealth inequality and the way that we are approaching the kind of wealth inequality that existed at the time of the French Revolution. It leaves me wishing more than ever that we could curb that greed and find ways as a society to kind of level the playing field a little bit more.
1: You know, Kellen, this has been a fun episode for me. Um, Not necessarily because the content is fun. Is the content ever fun on this podcast? But it's been kind of cool to think back to our first episode when I remember you asked me a question about Rome. I don't know if you remember, but you said, you know, Rome is still here so like they didn't collapse you know it's it's fun to see how intrigued you were at the beginning but how little you knew about the topic itself and now here we are a year later and you're schooling me on the topic you know teaching me about the western roman empire that i had no idea about so anyways i really appreciate you taking over the topic this week i know i learned a lot and i'm sure our listeners did as well So, every once in a while, we just have to put in a plug uh, asking for reviews. It's a huge help to us when, when you leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast, and especially helpful if you'll write out the things that you enjoy about listening. As always, have a great week, and we'll speak again next time.